Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 87, The Seven Angels. Today I interview Dr. James B. Jordan uh, to discuss preterism in the book of Revelation. Uh, he's written a reader's guide called The Vindication of Jesus Christ, uh, which I based my interview questions on. And um, You might recall that I had Dr. Kenneth Gentry on a while back to discuss preterism in the book of Revelation, but Dr. Jordan comes at it from a bit of a different perspective, which you'll hear about uh, during the course of the interview. Um, I, I do want to make a couple of announcements before we get into the interview. Uh, as I mentioned in a previous episode or two, I've got the, the next couple of months chock full of what I think are going to be some very fascinating uh, interviews and debates, um, not the least of which is mine, which will be coming up shortly, and I'll be mentioning that again in, in just a second. Um, I'm not going to go through that list again uh, because I don't want to bore you to death and uh, you know with, with details you've already listened to, but I did want to make one addition to that list, and that's the first announcement that I have, uh, which is that my friend Mike Felker and a Jehovah's Witness, uh, you might recall, by the way, that Mike Felker has uh, appeared on my show a couple of times to discuss the Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, over the past couple of months, he's been um, uh, recording a modular debate uh, with a Jehovah's Witness opponent on uh, the topic of whether or not um, Christianity Christians will spend eternity in heaven versus on earth, uh, particularly Christians under the new covenant. And if that sounds a little odd to you, uh, <laughs> it'll make more sense when you hear the debate. They've already recorded their openings and, and first rebuttals, and we're working on um, setting up some time for uh, live cross-examination. Uh, so I don't think it'll be much longer, maybe a few more weeks, maybe a month before I can put those pieces together, um, as one debate and publish it. Uh, so be looking forward to that. And if you want to check out Mike Felker's website, in the meantime, he's recently started a podcast, by the way, uh, the Apologetic Front, uh, podcast. And if you want to, uh, learn more about that, go to his website at apologeticfront.com. Mind you, that's a little bit of a different URL from his previous website. That's apologeticfront.com. Go there and you can uh, listen to the podcast that he started. Um, and like I said, be looking forward in the near future to uh, his debate um, with the Jehovah's Witness on my show. And that's in addition to all the myriad other uh, interviews and um, uh, debates and stuff that I have lined up for the near future. You know, now that I think about it, I don't know if I mentioned this last time because I don't know if I had this worked out yet, but uh, I've found a uh, complementarian uh, named Dr. Jim Hamilton who has uh, reviewed Philip Payne's book, whom I had on a, a few weeks ago to discuss egalitarianism, and he's agreed to come on my show to provide a response. Um, so, yeah, some some great episodes lined up for the near future, uh, which leads to the second announcement, which is uh, uh, that... Uh, we're down to just about a week until my upcoming debate. Indeed, it is the final countdown here with a week left to go before my debate. Uh, I think I'm pretty well prepared uh, for the various arguments that I've seen um, my opponent make at ChoosingHats.com. You know, I followed closely his uh, blog posts. Uh, I listened to his podcast, his roundtable podcast, in which he responded to uh, my roundtable podcast with my friends Ronnie and Joey. 
Uh, and suffice it to say that uh, I don't find any of his responses to my case uh, compelling. Now, that doesn't mean that they're wrong, uh, but it does mean that I have reasons why I uh, don't think that they're sound. I don't, I don't think that, Josh, that Joshua's arguments are sound. Um, and I'm looking forward to some of those things coming out during the debate. I'm sure that even with the huge amount of time that we're going to have, it's not going to be enough to, to discuss every single element of uh, either of our uh, cases. However, I do think that, I, I do hope at least, that many of the uh, very important points that I think that uh, should come out um, as a result of the preparation that my opponent has done, I hope those do come out, uh, because I'm sure that many of you listening right now and many of you who will listen to the debate have uh, followed Joshua's po posts and maybe have found them um, uh, challenging. Uh, but I don't think that they are, and I think that that will come out during the debate. So I'm looking forward to that. Please pray for us. Um, you know, I think that it seems to me as though Joshua's prayer uh, leading up to this debate and my prayer are a little bit different. Uh, I'll let you follow his posts um, so that you can check that out. My prayer for the upcoming debate is not uh, that what I think is the truth um, will in fact be made out to be true. <laughs> uh, because I quite frankly admit the possibility that uh, I might be wrong about this. I don't think that I am. And I think that the scripture is clearly in support of the position that I'll be advancing. Uh, but I could be wrong about that. And my prayer is that, um, if I, is that regardless of which one of us is correct, whether it's Joshua or myself, my prayer is that the Lord would make, uh, would powerfully make evident the truth of his word, um, using, uh, Joshua to make the truth of traditionalism clear, if that's the case, or, uh, using me to, uh, make evident the truth of the position that I'll be arguing. So. Please join me in that prayer, um, and also that we would treat each other humbly and respectfully, even though we think that our uh, respective positions are uh, wrong, even seriously wrong. Um, so uh, please keep all of that in your prayers, and uh, I guess I'll stop uh, jabbering on and go ahead and um, play today's promo for Dr. James White's The Dividing Line. Webcasting around the world from the desert metropolis of Phoenix, Arizona, this is The Dividing Line. The Apostle Peter commanded Christians to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us, yet to give that answer with gentleness and reverence. Our host is Dr. James White, Director of Alpha Omega Ministries and an elder at the Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church. This is a live program, and we invite your participation. If you'd like to talk with Dr. White, call now at 602-973-4602. Or toll-free across the United States, it's 1-877-753-3341. And now, with today's topic, here is James White. I highly recommend The Dividing Line with Dr. James White and his ministry, the uh, Alpha and Omega Ministries. Uh, you can check them out at aomin.org. Uh, you know, James and I don't agree on everything, uh, not the least of which is uh, this uh, position that I'll be defending in my upcoming debate. Um, but I think that in most areas, he's, a, he's an incredible exegete. He's an incredible debater. You know, I hope to be even approaching the quality debater one day uh, that he is right now. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I definitely very highly recommend his, his work, uh, as I'm sure my upcoming debate opponent does as well. Uh, you can listen online most Tuesday mornings at 11 a.m. Pacific time and most Thursday afternoons at, uh, 4 o'clock Pacific time p.m. Uh, or you can just subscribe to the podcast via the direct RSS feed and you can find that in the show notes. Uh, I think that you can also find the dividing line in iTunes. But anyway, I would definitely recommend that you check it out. And with that promo out of the way, let's go ahead and move into today's interview.
I'm joined today by my guest, Dr. James B. Jordan, founder and director of Biblical Horizons, a Christian research and publishing institute committed to historical biblical Christianity and seeking to be thoroughly biblical, comprehensively Catholic, and true to the Reformation faith. Dr. Jordan is an expert in biblical symbolism and is a fellow preterist, and he joins me today to talk about his Reader's Guide to the Book of Revelation entitled, The Vindication of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Dr. Jordan. Well, you're welcome. Uh, I want to begin by getting to know a little bit about you and your ministry. Can you tell us first uh, about Biblical Horizons, what it is that prompted you to start it, and how, uh, what its mission is today? Sure. It um, It is an outgrowth of an earlier organization called Geneva Ministries that was started in 1980 uh, in Texas. Um, that ministry uh, ran its course and eventually was taken over by a man who... Um, was not really on the same page as me. I was actually the director of the organization, but I never had <clears throat> the ability to uh, keep it on the track that I wanted it to be on. Mm. So we kind of came to a parting of the ways, uh, friendly, and uh, I started up Biblical Horizons. Um, I was working for several other organizations also at the time, so I was able to cobble together a, a living. Mm. Uh, but eventually it's gotten to the where uh, Biblical Horizons is strong enough to provide me with a full living. So we started up about 1987, uh, and the Biblical Horizons, I've just kept it as a name for what I do and people closely associated with me, like Peter Lighthart and Jeffrey Myers and uh, a number of others. Um, so that's, that's how we. I, I was reluctant to start it, except that a number of a uh, considerable number of people who benefited from Geneva Ministries told me they wanted me to keep going and keep producing stuff. Mm. So with that kind of support from pastors, I felt comfortable in setting up a parachurch organization like this. But it's only valid as long as it serves the church. Sure. And, and our what is, mission? Yeah, go ahead. Our mission, so to speak, is to um, is primarily biblical study materials, uh, Bible commentary. Um, over the years, um, when we first started out, Peter Lighthart and I pretty much teamed up on everything, but Peter's gone on, uh, now has his own career, his own publishing opportunities out in Moscow, so uh, that's good, you know, now mm -hmm. there's two places <laughs> yeah. and others. So, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, we, we work primarily in the area of Bible commentary and study and materials to help pastors and uh, interested layman, and also in the area of music and liturgy. Okay, great. Now, you've written a, a bunch of books and given countless lectures and sermons on uh, you know a variety of topics. Besides the topic we're talking about today, what are some other areas of particular interest to you and which have been the focus of your books and talks and such? Well, uh, most often I'm asked to talk about either Genesis 1 or about biblical symbolism and ceremony, um, and usually that kind of goes together, the early chapters of Genesis being the place where all basically the categories that of uh, categories of the world, the categories of the fundamental symbols like water and trees, animals uh, are set out and given their initial meaning. So a lot of times people say, come in and give us a, a two days on how to read the early chapters of Genesis or how to understand the basic symbols in the Bible. Hmm. And then, as I mentioned just a moment ago, I uh, am sometimes asked to come and do talk about worship and church music, to do seminars on singing the Psalms and getting your liturgy upgraded. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
or to talk about ecclesiology and, and how the church functions, how uh, Reformation Christianity uh, differs from the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic uh, problematic forms of Christianity. Sure, I see. Well, I, I base my questions today uh, on your book, The Vindication of Jesus Christ, which, from what I understand, is really just a survey of the book of Revelation, one summarizing a series of lectures that you've delivered over several years. Can you tell us just a little bit about that series of lectures lectures, and uh, how it is that my listeners and I can get our hands on them? Yes, I taught Sunday school in a church down here for 10 years, and uh, for four of those years, we went through the book of Revelation in detail. Um uh, hmm. Basically, the Sunday school class lasted uh, 50 minutes, and there are 204 wow. lectures in this series. So <laughs> you can tell how much detail we went into. And we took little excursions into Ezekiel and Zechariah and uh, Job and other places that, that back up, uh, that explain parts of Revelation, obviously. Sure. As far as getting them is concerned, if somebody wants them on cassette tapes, uh, we sell them all for a 1000 bucks, but... People don't want those anymore. <laughs> and the, the better way to get them is to go to wordmp3.com. Uh, that's just W-O-R-D-M-P-3.com. And they're the ones who keep um, um, uh, CDs and downloadable versions of all of my stuff as well as many other people. And I, and I think if I, if I recall from uh, going to that website the other day, there's a deal going on for that series. Is that right? I don't keep up with it. I oh. <laughs> they have a complete James Jordan series that they sell, and then they also sell individual lecture sets. Okay. Well, I would encourage my listeners to go there and check out uh, check it out because I do think that I recall there being a deal going on right now for that particular series. But uh, now, the understanding of the Book of Revelation, which you present in in the Vindication of Jesus Christ, is a preterist[ic] one. Uh, I and several other preterists I know didn't start out as preterists. We often uh, come to faith in environments in which some brand of futurism is the norm, uh, and certainly futurism is the dominant view, at least in America t uh, today, or at least it seems that way to me. Have you always been a preterist, and if not, what position did you hold previously, and what led, led you to change your mind? Uh, no, I haven't always been a preterist. Um, growing up in conservative Lutheranism, you just don't do eschatology. Mm. It's of a default amillennial position. Um, and initially, I was persuaded of what is called an idealistic view of Revelation mm. um, from reading R.J. Rushdoony's book, uh, Thy Kingdom Come and a couple of other books along those lines. Um, there was a certain amount of preterism there, but uh, that's what seemed most reasonable to me until I got, uh, until I went off to seminary and uh, encountered uh, J. Adams' book on the book of Revelation and some others that took a preterist view, and uh, I gradually came over to see, yeah, this makes a great deal more sense. So I guess uh, for the last... Uh, 40 years or so, I've uh, been a preterist. 35 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, An now, Orthodox preterist. What's that? An 
orthodox preterism. Orthodox, yeah, and that leads nicely to my next question because critics of preterism sometimes associate it with hyperpreterism or what I think unfortunately goes by the label full preterism sometimes. Uh, and they'll claim that one leads eventually to the other. Um, as obviously you know, hyperpreterists believe that Christ's second coming was in the distant past along with the general resurrection, which they think was a strictly spiritual, non-physical one. Um, now, I happen to think that hyperpreterism is a very serious heresy, and I don't think that preterism leads to it at all. Um, while convinced of preterism of the orthodox sort, how would you summarize your case against hyperpreterism? Yeah, I, I think that uh, for some people, preterism leads to it because they're not well grounded in the faith. Yeah. So, uh, you know, people, people who are, well, let's just repeat that, people who are not well grounded in the faith in general and who are coming from uh, uneducated fundamentalist or whatever backgrounds will get hold of this and then they'll see hyperpreterism and they'll just run right off to it. Mm. Uh, and kind of the reason I'm saying that, even though it sounds a little bit insulting, is that my first argument against this view is always that uh, my mama never taught me this. You know, the church <laughs> has been around for 2,000 years. Uh, we believe the Spirit guides the church, and the church, under the influence of the Spirit, has stated in her most central documents, in the creeds, uh, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, has stated uh, that there is a future coming of Jesus Christ and a physical resurrection. Mm. And uh, so we're not dealing with some, you know, question like how do you interpret Esther chapter four? <laughs> we're th this is something that the the Spirit has led the Church to make absolutely central to Christian belief. And so you don't just toss that out because you read, you know, a couple of articles and say, oh, I see, and now you've thrown out two thousand years of the teachings that the Spirit has given in the Church and what every single theologian and pastor in the Church has always taught. Mm. Uh, that you know, that's an act of arrogance that is incredible. Yeah. Um, now these ideas came up from people in the Church of Christ, uh, which is a you know we don't believe in any creeds and we don't believe in any kind of tradition. It's just me and the Bible, and um, so it's understandable that people with that mindset, uh, a few people in that denomination, would go in this direction, but. Uh, uh, for, for anybody that's in historic Christianity, this is not really acceptable. Now, I, I would say in terms of arguments, you've got 1 Corinthians 15. Um, yeah. I don't see how there's any way around those statements about resurrection flesh. Mm. There's Revelation chapter 20 that tells us that after the millennium, uh, there's going to be these further events. Um, Unless you want to say that the thousand, these people will tell you that the thousand years last from AD 30 to AD 70, right, which yeah. is an absurdity. <laughs> uh, and uh, I would argue that the millennium starts in AD 70, as my uh, uh, reading of the book of Revelation leads you to. I think First Thessalonians 4, being caught up in the air, Romans 8, talking about uh, resurrection of our mortal bodies. And then I'd say Genesis 1, um, there was a firmament between heaven and earth that was put in place on the second day of creation. If you step outside, that firmament is still there. It's true that uh, the veil is down, and so there's a spiritual relationship between heaven and earth that wasn't there before, but there is still an aspect of the physical created universe that was not there in the beginning, and that the book of Revelation indicates is eventually going to be taken away. Hmm. And then finally, I would say typology. If you understand that the temple and the tabernacle are microcosmic uh, 
versions of the universe as a whole. Uh, they, you know, they're they're architectural forms of the whole universe. The fact that uh, these, if you look at the history of these things and how they're taken down and what replaces them, it points clearly forward to the universe itself undergoing a change mm. and being restored in a new form. As the tabernacle is taken down and restored in a new form as the temple. In other words, you can't really read the Old Testament. You can't really read through the Bible. See, uh, another example is how in the flood God saves the animals right along with the human race. Mm. And how uh, in the book of Jonah, uh, the animals are, God says, I save these animals as well as people. And so the church has always taught animal resurrection. That when human beings are raised in the new world, that God, who cares about the sparrows, uh, is going to bring animals back as well. Uh, now, you, you mentioned this to hyperpreterists, and they freak out. <laughs> and that, although that's not contained in any, you know, central document of the church, it's pretty hard. You find it pretty hard to find theologians who haven't said that. Hmm. Uh, the assumption is God takes animals along with men and. When he conveys Noah from the old world to the new world, he conveys the animal kingdom along with it. So when people say, well, I see my dog in heaven, say, no, you won't see him in heaven, but you'll see him in the new world. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So it's that kind of uh, physical groundedness of the world that uh, these people have to set aside. No matter how they try to get around it, uh, they're operating with uh, a fairly Gnostic understanding of spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we're going to be talking about typology, symbology in, in a few minutes. Uh, I, I did want to uh, repeat a maxim that a friend of mine, um, you know, says on her podcast a lot. Her name is Dee Dee Warren, and she's also a preterist. And she's fond of saying, uh, theological novelty is not a good thing. And I think that that uh, definitely applies here, because like you said, throughout the history of the church, this this is not uh, this has not been seen anywhere. But anyway, moving on, um, not long ago, I had another preterist on my show to discuss preterism uh, as it pertains to the book of Revelation. His name is Dr. Ken Gentry. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with him. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. We're in uh, seminary together. Oh, cool. Uh, well, at least one friend of mine, though, told me that your approach to the book of Revelation and to preterism is quite different, or at least different in some ways from Dr. Gentry's, including that yours is based much more on something like biblical theology rather than, say, systematic theology. If you don't mind me asking, how would you say that your position and approach to Revelation differs from that of other preterists like Dr. Gentry? Well, I don't want to put words in uh, Ken Gentry's mouth because it's been 20 years since he wrote the books that I have read by him, and so mm -hmm. if if he's adjusted his views to some extent, uh, well, that's fine. But uh, there is a form of preterism that I call ancient newspaper exegesis, uh, <laughs> which looks at the Book of Revelation and the New Testament, and then opens the book, opens Josephus' uh, Jewish War, and then tries to tie in the symbolism there with the events. Uh, of the Jewish war, so that when you're reading Revelation and you read about this army and that army, we try to identify it as this Roman army or this Jewish army and the like. Um, and for a lot, you know, I held that view for a while. It's the view that David Chilton takes in his book on on it. But when I taught through the book myself, I came to the conclusion that the battles in Revelation are evangelistic. But the, the enemy that comes up from the pit, uh, of the locusts, are, are Judaizers that, that were talking in Revelation about the same situation as is described in Paul's epistles and the other epistles 
as is described in the book of Acts. It's the same warfare. Hmm. Paul tells us that we battle not primarily against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And it's that evangelistic conflict against principalities and powers and their unfortunate human agents that is the primary focus of the book of Revelation and gives it its permanent uh, applicability. And we're still dealing with the same principalities and powers. We're still dealing with heretics and counterfeit Christians. Hmm. Uh, uh, the book of Revelation is not an interesting series of predictions about future Jewish-Roman war. Um, I'd say that the, the Jewish-Roman war comes up in one verse, and that's when it says that the beast turns against the harlot and devours her. Hmm. Other than that, we're talking about uh, uh, spiritual conflict. So, for instance, uh, in the trumpets, uh, the fifth trumpet is this locust army that comes up from the pit underneath the temple. It's Judaizers. But then you have an army of lion-faced, fire-breathing people who come from the east, from the Euphrates. Well, that's, that's Abraham. He came from the east. Uh, that lion is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The fire that's breathed out is Pentecost. So that the 200 million <coughs> man army that comes from the east are not Chinese. And they're not some group of Romans. They're us. Uh, that's a picture of us and our power uh, as we are the, the new Abrahams, uh, the new people coming from the east and um, taking over the world as lions of the tribe of Judah. So I think the battles are evangelistic, and they deal with principalities and powers. And I think with that in mind, you can, you can click into the book of Hebrews and to New Testament events in the book of Acts and see them in the book of Revelation, and then your applicability becomes much greater. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know where Ken would fall out on that spectrum these days, but I know that 20 years ago the more common view was the, uh, you know, everything is about uh, the invasion of Palestine by Roman armies, and that's no longer my view. I see. Yeah, that's interesting stuff. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about symbols in just one more moment, but I am just curious, and I apologize for not including this in, in the questions. It just occurred to me. Okay. You, you would you would say, or would you say that, say in the Olivet Discourse, that that is more primarily referring to, uh, you know, I mean, for example, in, the, in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says that uh, when you see the armies surround Jerusalem, you're to flee into the, the wilderness or something like that. Would you say that that does have a little bit more to do with the uh, the Jewish War? A little bit more. I, I would say that uh, in Jesus' eschatological discourses, he is dealing with the city of Jerusalem. Mm. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is not the physical city of Jerusalem. Babylon is the uh, Jews and Judaizers, as they might be centered in the city of Jerusalem, but also wherever they are in the empire, attacking the church. Okay. So it's a more more general symbol. Um I take Jerusalem surrounded by armies to mean that in AD 64, when the temple was finished, there was a huge Passover, and the hosts of Israel showed up um, to enjoy the completion of the temple, and it's at that occasion that they turned against the Christians who had been saying the temple is no good and it's going to be destroyed. Hmm. And so it's that event, I think, that's pointed to, um, and you know, Jesus says, when when you see this, it's time to get out of Dodge. So I, I'm, you know, years ago I would have said Roman army or Edomite army, but now I'm more convinced that it's talking here about the um, uh, 
about this great Passover and the attack upon God's people by the Jews. That's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to do some some more reading into that. I'll have to listen to some of your lectures. Uh, but 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 speaking of symbolism, uh, the, the the same friend of mine that I mentioned earlier, as well as others, have mentioned that you're you've got this you know tremendous expertise in the area of biblical symbolism, and you wrote a book on the topic, I think anyway, called uh, Through New Eyes: Developing a Biblical View of the World. Uh, and that's me. Yeah, well, what I meant is I, I was is that that book I think is about symbology, and one of the chapters of the book we're discussing today intriguingly identifies the language of Book of Revelation not as Greek, but as quote unquote symbol. Um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit more about this language, and perhaps as a springboard to introducing us to it, you could answer a question that a friend recommended I ask you, and that question is this: Why did Jesus eat so much fish? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with Revelation. It's uh, the beginning of the book. Let me find precise verse here so that I can tell your listeners where to go. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants things that must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it. He sent and communicated it in symbols by his angel uh, to his bondservant John. He, He says that it is communicated in symbolic language. Um, And that symbolic language is not something strange or unusual. Um, As I think I mentioned at the beginning of our talk, uh, the basic structural symbolism of the world is laid out in the early chapters of Genesis. And then it receives a great big uh, jolt of information in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. I mean, I think... A Christian has to ask himself or herself, why does God do theology by describing pieces of furniture? Hmm. And how large a cork is supposed to be? And exactly how you chop an animal up into parts? uh, And which parts go first and then which parts go afterwards when you put it into the altar fire? And that's how God does theology. That's not how we do theology. <laughs> Plus, that's what God puts first in the Bible. Mm. I mean, we get the book of Genesis, and we get out of Egypt, and all of a sudden God says, okay, I want you to understand all this. And uh, we don't understand much about it at all. But uh, And so that's one reason why I have devoted so much of my life to trying to recover it. Um, not that other people haven't written on these things, But when I first started out, there was very little. Now there are more scholars uh, uh, working in these areas. But if we don't don't, uh, get a fairly decent grasp of this to where uh, mentally we can walk inside the tabernacle and look around and say, okay, this is north, south, east, and west. Uh, This is where the four faces of the cherubim would be located. Uh, This is... uh, the table of bread is over here with the faces looking up at the lampstand. The lampstand has the lamps positioned in front of it looking back down on the faces. So you have the 12 tribes looking up at God and God looking back down at the tribes. You have all these relationships, and then you have different kinds of animals, different kinds of offerings that mean different things. And then when we get into the book of Numbers, we have 10 chapters describing which tribes are on the north, south, east, and west, and the order in which they march, and all this kind of stuff. Well, now, all of that information then is transmogrified 
in Kings and Chronicles in the description of the temple. And the book of Psalms makes a lot of comments on it. And then it's transformed again in the in the book of Ezekiel throughout, and then the last nine chapters of Ezekiel in tremendous detail, and in the book of Zechariah, and a little bit of it in Daniel. And then you come to the New Testament and you come to the book of Revelation. <clears throat> well, that's the symbolic language in which it's written. Hmm. And that symbolic language has started in, in the early chapters of Genesis, and, the, and then it's run through the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, and then it's run again through the temple, and it's run again through Ezekiel's temple and Zechariah. And now we come to the last, the last iteration of this kind of information. Okay? Faces of the cherubim, uh, directions, uh, seasons of the year, um, five months here. All this kind of stuff uh, is all built on that particular aspect of the Bible, hmm. which is why, you know, you can't just read Revelation and close your eyes and say, I think this looks like helicopters to me, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or this, that, and the other. And nor is it really possible, I mean, it's better to say, okay, let's, let's flip back in the Old Testament and find a verse that looks like this. That's fine, but what you really need to do is get the whole package in mind, because that whole the world that is symbolized by the tabernacle undergoes a destruction and, and renovation in the world described by the temple. That's a new heavens and a new earth. And then that heavens and earth is, is ripped down in the days of the destruction of the temple. And if you look at Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel uh, describes all the nations of the world sinking down to the bottom of the sea. So we're going to have to have a new creation. And so Ezekiel's temple just gives us a symbolic form of that new heavens and earth. So in a way, this kind of thing has happened before. And when we get to the book of Revelation, we're seeing it happening in its definitive form in the coming of the new covenant, which is what all of these earlier changes were prophesying. Hmm. So that, that's a way of saying, you know, if we get the symbol package in mind, then Revelation is not so hard to read and understand because we know that God does things in seven days and seven iterations, so we can see seven sections in Revelation and seven this and seven that and seven this and seven that, and we can go back to Genesis 1. And then if we read further, we come to the building of the tabernacle, and there are exactly seven speeches that the Lord gives to Moses in Exodus 25 to 31 about how the tabernacle is to be built. And those seven speeches track the seven days, and so we get symbolic overlays, and we just build up, okay, hmm. to the book of Revelation, and then we've got a whole backlog of information as to how everything fits. Yeah. And you can go on with it forever. 204 lectures is only scratching the surface. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's kind of the general, I mean, that sounds like a huge tall order, but, you know, if, if I do my work right, somebody else can come along and build on it. <laughs> Not sure. have to spend all the time I had to spend um, getting into the beginnings of it. Yeah. Now, why did Jesus eat so much fish? Well, in the Old Testament, I should say in the Old Creation, land animals represent Israel, and animals in the sea represent the Gentiles who are around Israel. And so uh, the sacrificial system is all land animals. You don't put fish on the altar. Uh, the only time you run into fish is in the book of Jonah when we are traveling over into a Gentile land. 
But the Gentile lands are spoken of as the islands of the sea, and you cross water in order to get to them ordinarily. Well, when you get to the New Testament, after the shepherds come and visit Jesus, there's nothing about shepherds and sheep except in a couple of parables. Everything is fish. Jesus is eating mm. fish. He, eats, he uh, serves bread and fish. And then uh, in the resurrection, he asks to eat. He eats fish. And uh, at the lakeside meal at the end of the book, he's um, cooking fish. He tells them there'll be fishers of men. The parable Everything of the good fish, fish and the bad fish. Yeah. And so um, we're talking about the Gentiles. Yeah. Okay. Um, and we're on the Sea of Galilee, which is called Galilee of the Gentiles. In the Old Testament, it's called Harasheth of the Gentiles. So that's the contact point with the Gentile world. So everything is about moving out and taking taking in the Gentile world. And when you get to the book of Acts, then you see Paul going, and he's constantly traveling on water to get where he's going. So this is consistent imagery, and the, the shift in imagery is something we don't catch because we're used to thinking about Jesus in the New Testament with one half of our brain and the Old Testament and all those sheep and oxen with another half of our brain. But actually, you got to put that together and see this big shift that's taking place. Hmm. So then it's not just the book of Revelation that's written in the language of symbol. There's a sense in which the whole Bible is written in the language of symbol to a certain extent? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. one aspect. In other words, everything the Bible says happened historically happened exactly the way it has. And one of the things that's unique about the Bible is this chronological information on almost every page of it. You know, this is not mythical events. These are historical events. The mm. Bible, God is very concerned with you know, what year it was, what month it was. When it comes to building the temples, it's always what day it was. Mm. So, um, you know, you, you cannot take out the historical aspect, but overlaid on that or interwoven through it is the, the uh, additional meaning that's supposed to resonate with us and, and give us the aha experience of saying, ah, I see how these things fit together. Yeah. You know, it's funny, uh, a friend of mine met Ravi Zacharias once, and he asked him, you know, have you, you must have read through the Bible a hundred times. Do you ever get bored of it? And Ravi responded that, you know, he, he can read Shakespeare a few times, and he's pretty much got it. But every time he opens up the Bible, there's a new layer of meaning that he hadn't discovered before. And, you know, the, the, what you're describing really kind of uh, illustrates that. There's layer upon layer woven, you know, things woven throughout the history yeah. of the Bible. It's very interesting. Um, but moving on, there, there's one such symbol. Uh, that you identify in your book is what you call the clue to unlocking the seeming mystery of what the book of Revelation is all about and when it was written. And that clue, as you put it, is in the book of Revelation, angels are portrayed as bringing final judgments on the creation. Can you explain that for us and how that fact, the angel, that angels are bringing final judgment on the creation, tells us what Revelation is concerned with and when it was written? Yeah. Um, we know from Galatians and from... Acts chapter 7 and from Hebrews chapter 1, that angels were the, our, our teachers and guides and rulers when we were children uh, under the old creation. We were, we were set up in the Garden of Eden uh, to be educated by angels. And uh, the law, uh, we're told, was given by angels. God appears to us in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, as our teacher and instructor and, and uh, the one who spanks us and brings us up. And uh, angels basically educate us by stars and animals in the Old Testament. I mean, animals are brought to Adam. The Proverbs are full of animals. 
the worship system is through animals, and the times of the year are measured by the sun, moon, and stars, and these are the way we were educated as children. Well, we don't live in that world now. Mm. Our times of worship are determined by us, uh, and uh, we're not you know, glancing at the sun and the moon to find the vernal equinox and decide to have Passover then, or, or worshiping just as the sun comes up, you know, on Sunday morning. Um, and similarly, we're not worshiping through animals, we're worshiping through the sacrifice of a man, Jesus Christ. So, um, <clears throat> we're living in this new world, and in this world, Paul says, we judge angels. So uh, the analogy I like to use, and I've, other people have used, is of a an officer cadet who's gone off to boot camp. And when he's done with boot camp, he's going to be a lieutenant. But while he's at boot camp, there's this sergeant who is teaching him everything and beating him up and making him get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and run a mile. And he has to salute him and say, yes, sergeant, yes, sergeant. And the sergeant is whipping him into shape. But there comes that graduation day when the cadet uh, is given his lieutenant's bars. Hmm. And the sergeant is standing there at the gate as all the lieutenants march by. And now the sergeant is bursting with pride and he's saluting all these young lieutenants that he has raised up. And now they have authority over him. That's the way it was supposed to be. And that's what Satan decided he didn't want to have happen. Hmm. So that's why he tried to prevent Adam and Eve from growing up and pervert this maturity. But in Jesus, you see, Jesus does not fall for Satan's tricks. Uh, he goes ahead and does all the things that Adam had, uh, he, you know, he endures what Adam refused to endure, the temptations. And Jesus then is elevated over the angels, and in union with him, we are too. So when you see angels bringing judgments on the world, it cannot be the last judgment. Hmm. In that judgment, um, God's saints will be coming with him. In the judgment, it's in the book of Revelation, it has to be the end of the old creation that's involved. So we start off with a picture of 24 elders uh, who are angels sitting on thrones. There are no human beings in heaven. And then Jesus ascends to heaven. And then the angels uh, take off their crowns deposit them around the throne, and each angel goes out and does his thing. And there are 24 archangel acts in the book of Revelation. There are, seven, uh, there are two strong angels, one with a book and one with a stone. There are seven trumpet angels and seven bowl angels. And then in the center of the book, there are seven Euphrates angels, and there are seven harvesting angels in chapter 14. And when they're done with that, heaven is empty. The glory of God fills the place in chapter 15, and the saints are standing on the sea of glass. They've come close to heaven, but they haven't gone in yet. And then in chapter 20, we see those thrones again, and now the saints are sitting on them. The saints now have the crowns that were left behind by the angels. And that's why the millennium starts in the year 70. But the fact that angels are yielding their guardianship, passing judgment on the old creation that was their responsibility, and handing over the reins to human beings in union with Jesus Christ, well, that's what's happening in Revelation. And that tells us <clears throat> that the book must have been written before A.D. 70, because uh, it makes no sense if it's written in the 90s. 
and it also tells us it's about the end of the old creation and the coming of the new creation uh, down to chapter 20. That's really interesting. Um, and, and these my angels... Book, my little book gives all this out. It shows a chart of how the angels work and what each angel does in Revelation and how it all fits together, but it's kind of hard to do a chart on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and I would definitely recommend that my uh, listeners get the book and, and also get those uh, uh, lectures to go along with it. But uh, now, now these angels... They're intimately associated with another symbol in the book of Revelation, one that is kind of made up of other symbols within symbols, and I suppose this is why the language of symbol is so important. But uh, I'm talking about the seven-sealed book, which you call the eighth letter following the letters to the seven churches. I, I want to talk in a moment in more detail about the seals of that book, but first, can you sort of summarize for us what this seven-sealed book with its seals and trumpets and bowls represents as a whole? Yeah, it represents the new creation, new covenant. It's been sealed up for 4,000 years. <clears throat> and uh, essentially, you've got the letters to the seven churches, and you have an eighth letter, which is written to the church at large, including Babylon. So Babylon is false church, uh, is, uh, is judged in this letter, just as the letters to the seven churches uh, have blessings and judgments in them. And the, the book has been sealed up, all these blessings and phenomena that, uh, <clears throat> that this breaking of the seven seals reveals, um, these things haven't been allowed to happen yet because uh, the human race wasn't ready. But now that Jesus has taken the throne, now we're ready to open the book and, uh, and bring in the new creation and read the final letter. Okay. So so let's talk then specifically about these seven seals, which, which you talk about in a chapter called Releasing the Kingdom. Uh, and, and I'd like to begin with the notorious four horsemen, just because of their notoriety. Uh, as a lamb breaks the first four seals, each releases a horse and its rider. What do each of these horses and their riders communicate as relates to this releasing of God's kingdom? Yeah, I think that um, the way to understand that is to understand that all four riders are Jesus. And all four horses are the church, and uh, at least at this during this overlap time between AD 30 and AD 70 is the church and the angels uh, working together uh, during this period when the church has been established, but the angels haven't yet finished their work. Um, the white horse goes out giving the initial proclamation of the gospel. Following behind that comes the red horse, which... Uh, sets people against each other. Now, you have to understand this in New Testament evangelical context. The red horse of warfare is not talking about Romans' armies fighting against Greeks or uh, human armies. It's talking about exactly what Jesus says. A man's enemies are those of his own household. Uh, mother against daughter, brother against brother. That's the conflict that comes when the gospel comes into a new area. So when the gospel goes into, uh, is proclaimed in Judea and Galilee, uh, some people convert and some don't, and it tears up families, mm. you know, and that's the conflict. Then comes the black horse, which is, protects the wine and the oil, but starves out the bread. And that is a picture of the gradual starving out of the old order and the protection of the new order. 
So the new apostolic church and our church is portrayed as wine and oil, which are protected, but the old uh, order portrayed by bread is starved out. Mm. And then comes the green horse, not pale, it's green, it's the word chloros, it means as green as a green leaf. Uh, the green horse, and you know, that's a symbol, folks, there aren't any green horses out here. Mm. <laughs> uh, the green horse comes and he brings final death and destruction to the old order. Now, these horses are the white stone of Naphtali, which is the bride tribe, then the red stone of Judah, which is the royal warfare tribe, the black stone of Joseph, the onyx, which is the bread and wine tribe. Joseph uh, serves the bread and wine to Pharaoh. His whole story is about bread and wine. And then the green horse is the emerald of Levi. And the Levites are the ones who, at the golden calf, killed off the idolaters. Now, that order happens every time the gospel goes anywhere. Hmm. So it happened in the first century, but you take the gospel to Bango Bango, and the missionary is going to proclaim, and people are going to be converted, and other people aren't, and the conflict is going to be between fathers and sons and brother and brother. And then gradually the old magic isn't going to work anymore. That's what missionaries tell us, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, in in the, the famous uh, Christian novel, Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe, he describes how the missionary comes and, and all the untouchable people and broken people become Christians. And then there's conflict between them and their families. And uh, he asks for a place to build the church. And uh, the elders say, you can build it over there, which is the cursed ground. <laughs> well, he builds it over there, and nothing happens. Mm. The old magic stops working. Uh, the chief goes out to the cave to find the missing child, and the spirits always used to appear to him and tell him what was what. Well, I think is really true. I think angels were helping people along before the gospel comes. But now it doesn't work anymore. You've got to shift over to the church. And finally, you know, the old religion just dies off. It's not there anymore. So that progression, that's, that's the progression of how the gospel comes hmm. uh, through those four horses. So, again, let's, it's very practical. It's not some fantastic thing, you know, that's uh, not normal. It's very normal. Hmm. Yeah, it's really fascinating. But, but what about the remaining three seals, the, the martyrs, uh, judgment, and another angel, quote-unquote, who throws the burning censer down to earth, uh, an interlude between the sixth and seventh seals? What, what, what do all these communicate? Um, well, let me make sure I've got verses right here. <laughs> um, the, the martyrs under the altar, uh, in chapter 6, the fifth seal, uh, are slain because of the word of God and because of their testimony. Now, that means Old Testament saints. If you look at Revelation, the New Testament martyrs are slain because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The Old Testament saints, believers, are said to be slain because of the word of God and their testimony that they maintained. And they cry out and saying, hey, what's going on? We saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and we've been down here in Sheol, and uh, after Jesus died on the cross, he came down and visited us, and, and we celebrated, and then he was resurrected, and we thought we were going to go to heaven and ascend with him and they're told to wait a while because there are some more martyrs that have to happen. The final harvest of the old creation has to happen, and then they will all ascend together. So here again, the seal is there saying 
now everybody's when you die you will go to heaven you won't go to abraham's bosom and wait around uh, you won't go to paradise which jesus went to uh between you know he says to the thief this day you will be with me, me in paradise well that's the good part of sheol but now it says blessed are the dead who die in the lord from now on when we die we don't go there and wait a while we go straight to heaven but at this time in history they're told to wait just a little while, 40 years, until the full number of uh, the martyrs is to be collected up for that first ascension. Then we come to the sixth seal, and the world starts to fall apart. Uh, the stars start to fall. The moon starts to turn to blood. Everybody says, uh, hide from us because a great day of wrath has come, and then that is stopped. It's as if Everything is stopped in midair, and uh, we're going to take that up again with the bowls. Mm. But for the next 40 years, this judgment, which is announced, which starts on the day of Pentecost, is held off. And so then we see the ceiling of the 144,000, along with a mixed multitude that is unnumbered, and that should be familiar. That's in the book of Numbers. The, uh, the Israelites who leave from Egypt are counted up and numbered, and the mixed multitude that goes along with them are not counted and numbered. So these are the God-fearers and the Jews of the old creation. They're set aside, and they are going to be martyred. And once they're martyred, then that's the full total of martyrs, and everything will happen. Hmm. So then you say the uh, seventh seal. There's a breaking of the seventh seal, and there's silence in heaven for a half an hour. That tells you something. Well, let me first of all identify this. Uh, we see another angel standing at the altar. Now, whenever you see in Revelation another angel, you capitalize that. That's not one of the 24 angels. That's the 25th. The 24 angels represent the 24 chief priests, and the 25th angel represents the high priest. In other words, these are the heavenly architect archetypes of the temple on earth. So you got... 24 chief musician Levites, and then you've got the 25th chief musician, and mm. you've got uh, 24 chief priests, and you've got the one 25th high priest. Well, that's who this is. This is Jesus in his form as the angel of the Lord, and he cast down fire from heaven, and that's the day of Pentecost. Mm. And that fire comes to the earth, which is the land. In, in Revelation, earth, land represents Jews, sea, represents Gentiles, very consistent with the entire Bible. And uh, then Pentecost is sent down to the earth, and the full judgment starts to happen. So all of the things we just read happened uh, between the time Jesus ascended and the Pentecost, which is ten days, and now Pentecost happens, and the fire of the Holy Spirit is sent down to the earth. When it says there was silence in heaven for a half an hour, the book of Revelation is laid out as a worship service. So we are called, uh, we, uh, Jesus inspects us, and then John is called up to heaven to uh, hear singing, hear the word, uh, see the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then he's sent back out, uh, sent back out to conquer the world, and the millennium starts. So that's, we do that every Sunday, if you have communion every Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what's happening here is we've had all this singing that started up, when Jesus ascended into heaven, and they've been singing up till now. But now it's time to hear the trumpets, and so the singing stops, 
so that we can hear the reading of the Word and the sermon, and then the singing will start back up again after the trumpets are finished. But that's, that's what's happening with those seven seals. And now the book is open, you see. Now all the things that were held back, it couldn't happen before. Now they start to happen big time. Hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm I'm going to have to listen to those lectures myself. And of course, we could spend, you know, hours talking further about the seals and still more hours talking about the trumpets and bowls. But I, for the sake of time, I really want to let this interview be a teaser that will prompt my listeners to check out your work. But there are a few other symbols that I want to ask you about. Uh, one of them of particular fascination amongst Christians. It's this sea beast of Revelation 13. Um, tell us about the background in Daniel 7 and how this beast of Revelation represents what you call imperial Rome or new Rome. Okay, in Daniel chapter, let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel is, in the book of Ezekiel, called the Son of Man about 130 times. When Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he's saying, I'm the greater Ezekiel. A lot of hmm. people miss on that, but you look at all the stuff Ezekiel does, uh, that's the stuff Jesus does. And plus, Son of Man means high priest. So Ezekiel sees the cherubim, which are in the Holy of Holies, and that's only the high priest ever gets to see that. And he is told to go up to the four cherubim, the four living creatures, and to reach his hand out and to pull out a scroll, which is his message, and to eat it and start delivering his message. Now, 40 years later, uh, Daniel, at the end of his life, toward the end of his life, sees, and long after Ezekiel has written his book, and it's Everybody's been reading Ezekiel and studying it for a while. He sees one like a son of man approach the Ancient of Days and receive a kingdom. So someone like Ezekiel goes to the throne of God and is handed his kingdom. Now at the beginning of Daniel chapter 7, he sees four living creatures. And our Bible says four beasts, but it's exactly the same word as in Ezekiel. Hmm. Ezekiel's cherubim come down out of the sky. These living creatures come out of the sea, so they're Gentiles. They're Gentile powers. But they're not enemies. They are actually guardians and protectors for the people of God. The first one is a lion. He has his lion head, and he's Nebuchadnezzar, who tells everybody they better worship the true God. And uh, he's, he stands up like a man. Then comes the bear. Uh, the bear is the second head. That's Persia. Uh, he eats three ribs. I understand the ribs to be... I have a commentary on Daniel, by the way, that everyone should buy and read and read and read. <laughs> but the the uh, the ribs there are brides. I mean, they're Eve. Eve is the rib. And the ribs that the bear takes in and says, I want you to help me out, they are uh, Daniel and Nehemiah and... Uh, 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 Mordecai. These are three guys who assist the Persian king. But he, as each beast goes bad, he's replaced. And the next beast is the Greek beast, the leopard. He has four heads. A head is a beginning point. So the first Greek head is Alexander the Great. Then we go to Daniel chapter nine, we, uh, 11. We read more about it. There's the king of the south. He's a Greek head. Then there's the king of the north. He's a Greek head. And then there's senatorial Rome, which is a Greek head, part of this Greek commonwealth. Uh, time. Then there's the last beast, the most ferocious beast of all. Uh, and he's not identified as any particular animal. And he's not given a name because nobody's ever heard of Rome hmm. <laughs> uh, in, in Palestine. At this time in history, Rome was, 
still a town on the Tiber. Uh, so the best thing you get in Daniel is sh- ships from Cyprus are going to come. You know, that turns out to be the Romans when it actually happens. But uh, at that time in history, we're not going to pop the word Rome into the text. It's, uh, the symbolism is going to leave that undefined. And this last beast is more terrible than any, but he's still a good beast. Man, if you want protection, you want that last beast. It says he tramples with uh, feet of iron. Well, that's what Psalm 2 says about the Messiah. It says, I will smash them with a rod of iron. Hmm. So just because that terrifying imagery is used, that doesn't mean that this Roman Empire beast is bad. At least not at he's first. Still protect, he's still protecting the church. And so if you look at, in the Gospels, every single Roman we meet is favorable to Jesus, including Pilate. Hmm. Pilate didn't want to put Jesus to death. I mean, here's this prophet going around telling everybody to pay their taxes. This prophet's going around healing the servants of his own centurions. You know, Pilate knows what's going on. He also knows Jesus does miracles, and he he doesn't want to do it. He's forced to. Hmm. Then we read the book of Acts. Every time we encounter Romans, they protect the church from the Jewish Jews who were trying to cause riots and cause trouble. Um, So... Throughout the book of Acts, the the beast is still doing what the beast is supposed to do. It's protecting, you know, it's your Doberman Empire. <laughs> hmm. uh, it's guarding you. Now, when the beast goes bad and turns against the church, well, that's what happened in the days of Belshazzar, and he was removed. And that's what the book of Revelation shows. Very shortly, the Roman beast, which has been protecting the Christians up till now, Nero is going to turn against the Christians. Uh, he is going to become an enemy of God and of his church, and so he is going to be destroyed. But that's that's what this beast is. Originally it's good. It has seven heads. It, each beast takes up from the one before, so by the time you get to Imperial Rome, you've got seven heads on that beast. That's very interesting stuff. Uh we're going to talk about those heads in a moment because I have a question about them. But there's a there's something particular about this beast that you know Christians often speculate about, and uh, I'm talking about the number 666. When I had Dr. Gentry on, he explained how he thinks uh, that this number is gematria, pointing to uh, Nero Caesar, and this is what I've thought since I've become a preterist. But your take on it is somewhat different, isn't it? Yeah, I thought that up until I got to this passage as I was teaching through it, and I thought. No, I don't think that's right. Um, You have in this passage a beast from the sea and a beast from the land who are the Herods. And uh, this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, too. We can talk about that. Then we have the number of the beast. We have the sea beast, and then we have the number of the beast. Hmm. Well, if this is a counterfeit of the Trinity, we have the Father, and then we have the Word of the Father. The Word of the Father is the second person of God. It's not the word Father. In other words, we have the we have God the Father, God the Word of the Father, and God the Spirit. Hmm. Okay, so we have the sea beast, the number of the beast, and the image of the beast. I think the number of the beast represents the land power. And so it goes back to Solomon. The the number is any, I'll, I'll tell you this, any 
first century Jewish person hearing this chapter, when he hears the number 666, is going to think instantly of Solomon. In the Solomon narrative, uh, Sol the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon and everything is great, and then we have a description of Solomon's three great sins. And the opening statement is Solomon took in 666 talents of gold every year. Well, the king is forbidden to multiply gold, and he's multiplying it because a talent is 100 pounds. A nation about the size of Delaware is taking in a huge billions and billions of dollars per year. Hmm. Then it says he multiplied horses, and it says explicitly in Deuteronomy 17 the king is not to multiply horses. And then the third thing it says is he had a thousand wives and concubines. Deuteronomy 17 says he's not to multiply wives. So Solomon breaks all three laws of kingship, and the opening statement is Solomon took in 666 talents of gold. So that is that number represents the Jewish king in apostasy. And I think any Jewish hearer of this text, uh, as it's read out in church, is going to think instantly of Solomon. He's not going to think of Caesar. Uh, you even have to change the word Nero Caesar a little bit to make it fit. It becomes very obscure. And this book is a revelation. It's not an obfuscation. Uh, the notion that it's Caesar has to go along with the idea, well, this is uh, secret writing that we don't want people to understand. Only the insiders can understand it. Well, God never does things that way. Hmm. It's plain and right out on the surface, whatever God is going to proclaim. And so that's another reason I have real difficulty with that view, that this is a secret, concealed idea. Uh, this is a revelation. Uh, God doesn't care. If God wants to say something about Nero, he says it. Jesus says, go tell Herod that fox. He doesn't mince any words, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I used to think that it made the most sense to me, but it doesn't make sense to me anymore. I think that uh, the, six, the, the number of the beast is the second hypostasis, the second person in the beasthood. And so it, represent, it re refers to the uh, land beast. That's how I take it. Okay, that's interesting. So it's not it's not the number of the sea beast. It's not the you know uh, it's, it would if the sea beast is where Nero comes into play. Then if the the number is of the land beast, it wouldn't have anything to do with Caesar to begin with. Well, the land beast does whatever the sea beast. Well, does. sure, yeah, yeah. And so he's an agent of the sea beast, just as the just as the son of God is an agent of the father. Mm. But uh, I think that. Uh, I think the passage reads better, uh, you know, without going into a yeah. lot of detail, uh, to see it as referring to uh, a Jewish power, the Jewish king, who is Herod, uh, going bad. Okay. Now, another difference between you and Dr. Gentry, uh, coming back to those seven heads I mentioned, uh, he views those seven heads of the beast as successive emperors of Rome, um, which he thinks points strongly to the 60s as the date of Revelation's authorship. Now, you also see the imagery as strongly pointing to the 60s, but tell us about your understanding of the seven heads and ten horns. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the seven heads, again, if, if you look back at Daniel, that beast that comes from the sea is really one beast in four manifestations, and there's seven heads all together. The seventh head has ten horns on it, and those horns are the Roman emperors. So you always start with Julius Caesar, even though he wasn't officially an emperor, and then you go to um, Octavian or Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero. 
Then you have Galba, Othello, and Vitellius, Vespasian. Um, so you, you wind up with the end happening during the emperorship of Vespasian, which is the tenth horn. Hmm. And that those that's what I see it as. The horns are... Horn in the Bible, the word karen, means outward manifestation. The word is used for a trumpet. So if you go blah with a trumpet, it's real loud. You hear it. It's right out front. It's used for a horn of an animal, which is where the animal goes. The first part of the animal goes forward there. Uh, it is used for the mountaintops, the highest part of the mountain with the shiny snow on top. It's used for the horns of the altar, which are the highest parts of the altar that stick up. And so the, the horns are the kingly rulers and manifestations of the empire as a whole. I see. Rather than the heads themselves? Rather than the heads themselves. The heads themselves are actual cultures. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And I, and I think you mentioned this already, uh, the second beast then, the one from the land, is the, the Herods. And, uh, you know, you said that the beasts um, and their background in Daniel, they represent protective powers. And the Herods were supposed to be protective or something like that. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, the Herods were, a, as agents of, uh, the, the Herods were put in power by the Romans. Uh, the Jews were involved in a terrible civil war, uh, and they called upon the Romans to come in and mediate, because uh, for the century before that, Rome had exercised a protective umbrella over Palestine and told both Syrians and the uh, Egyptians uh, to stay away. So when they had this civil war in the uh, 40s BC, they called in the Romans to come and help them out, and the Romans came in and said, there's no way you Jews can rule each other. We're going to go over and we're going to get the king of the land of Edom, who has been circumcised and has been a Jew for several generations, and we're going to put him in charge. Hmm. So that's how these Idumean or Edomite men became the official kings and rulers of the Jews. They were Jews by circumcision and religion, but they were descendants of Esau. But their job was to be kings of Israel. So that's how they came in, and they, were, they should have been agents of Rome and done what the Romans said. But we find in the Gospels they're not doing that. Uh, the Herod wants to put Jesus to death. Yeah. The Herod puts John the Baptist to death. The Herod puts James to death. And so they're, they're being kind of bad from the bone. <laughs> mm. But that's who they are. And if you look back... Again, this can be confirmed if we go back <clears throat> throughout uh, Bible history. There are always three enemies. There's the sanctuary enemy, which is your false Jews and the Sanhedrin and the Gospels. There is your brother-brother enemy, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, northern and southern Israel, uh, and that's at this time the Herods. And then you have your Gentile enemy like the Syrians or the Egyptians or somebody, Assyrians, uh, and that's the Romans. So when Jesus is put on trial, he's put on trial by the Sanhedrin, and then he's sent to Herod and he's sent to Pilate, all three of them. And in the book of Acts, you have the same thing. Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin, and the Romans come in and deliver him. They protect him. They're still being a good beast. And then he's uh, brought before Herod Agrippa, 
and he's brought before Festus, the Roman governor, all three. So you've got your Genesis 3, your sanctuary, and you've got Genesis 4, your conflict out in the land, and you've got Genesis 6, your intermarriage out in the world. Those three zones that are set up in early Genesis are carrying all the way down here. So what we see in Revelation 13 is we see uh, now there's an enemy coming up out of the sea, Gentile enemy, and we see uh, the land enemy, which is the land beast, and then we see the beast image, which is the temple, and is the counterfeit high priest and the evil worship of the temple um, that Christians are going to be excluded from. So, again, those three powers, that, that evil trinity is always there. Hmm. I can't remember what your question was. but No, no, you, you answered. It was <laughs> what this, second, this land beast is. And, you know, it's funny because as, as you, you know, talk about this, it, it really strikes me how there's just no way uh, to understand this in a, you know, 2,000-year future time frame. You know, it's so thoroughly... Yeah, um, but of course, there's one more really big, you know, uh, noteworthy symbol that Christians speculate about. Uh, to me, it seems obvious. Uh, Mystery Babylon. Uh, tell us about what she represents and, and why the beast that she's sitting on, which is, from what I've understood you to be saying, uh, the, the protective Rome. Why, why it, uh, why it turns against her? Yeah, it turns against because the um, the Jews have. Um, worked to persuade the Romans to go bad. That's what they're trying to do throughout the book of Acts, and the implication here is that at some point they have something to do with uh, bringing it to pass. Now, what Babylon is, uh, is explicitly told us in Zechariah chapter 5. And this is the passage that too many people aren't thinking about, but I'm going to read it and go over it with you and your listeners. So they all have a very good idea. Okay. Uh, Zechariah chapter 5, starting in verse 5. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what this is going out. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah. That's a bushel going forth. And this is what they look out, looked like in all the land. All right, we can't go into everything. Yeah. And behold, a lead slab was lifted up. And there's a woman sitting inside this ephah. And he said, this is wickedness. And he threw her down in the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and heavens. And I said to the angel, where are they taking this ephah? And he said, to build a house for her, a temple for her in the land of Shinar, Babylon. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Now, you have to, <clears throat> here's the place where you've got to close your eyes. Mm. You have to say, okay, we have this round ephah. There's wickedness inside of it. There's a lead slab on top of it. There are two unclean birds on either side of it. It goes to Babylon, and a temple is built around it. So what is it? Are you asking me that? Yeah, I'm asking you, <laughs> uh, and I'm asking your listeners that. What do you think it is? Uh, I'm going to go over it again. Okay. It's got a lead cover, not a gold cover. It's round and not round. Oh, it's the ark. It's a counterfeit ark. A counterfeit ark, right. It's an evil counterfeit ark, and the woman is inside of it, locked up, 
and a temple is built for her in Babylon. Now, in, when Jesus dies, the veil of the temple is torn in half, and the and we see in the book of Revelation, the ark is opened up, and the mysteries of the kingdom that were contained within the ark are given out to everybody. And at the same time, by implication, the lead lid is lifted off, and the mystery of iniquity is revealed. So we have the mystery of the kingdom revealed when the when the tabernacle is open, temple is opened up, and we have the mystery of iniquity revealed when this counterfeit ark is uncovered. And now the woman gets out, and now she's sitting on the back of these, this beast, just as the Lord rides on the wings of the wind and rides on the wings of the cherubim. So she is again counterfeiting the Lord, uh, counterfeiting the place of worship, saying, "Worship me," and uh, and that that's the heart of man's religion ultimately we don't worship other gods because we made up those gods <laughs> they're just aspects of our own personality that we're worshiping so this woman is false religion which we still have around today but at that time in history she is the temple in jerusalem she is the false temple uh where they say we have no king but caesar Mm. That's who they worship there. In their heart of hearts, when they had a choice between Yahweh and Caesar, they said, no way. They said, Caesar is the one we have no king but. And so that's that's all that gospel stuff is right here. And that's who this woman is. Now, she's not just, you know, since this is a vision, this is not just the physical temple. Uh, it's also this religious principle wherever it's spread in the empire. But it's basically the Jews and the Judaizers. It's those who were attacking the church. And uh, with with the building of the temple in AD 64, there was a, a false Pentecost in Revelation chapter 13. The uh, false fire comes from heaven and tremendous enthusiasm for the temple breaks out among the Jews in Palestine. And they say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And the Christians say, no, Jesus is the temple. Uh, he's destroyed this temple. And uh, this temple is, is doomed. You know, he's told us it's going. And they said, we put up with this now, listen to you people, for 35 years, but no more. And so great tribulation breaks out against the saints in Palestine. And the same thing happens in Rome, because the Christians in Rome have been telling the Romans, hey, you know... Uh, this empire is about to come to an end. Mm. You know, the Persians conquered Babylon, and Alexander conquered the Persians, and this city is going to be conquered by another army, which it was. By the, you know, the Julio-Claudian line ended, and Vespasian conquered the city with his army. And so when Nero burns Rome and blames the Christians, that's credible. So <laughs> mm. both things are happening. This announcement that the old world is coming to an end infuriates the people who are vested in the old world. And... Uh, that's that's the thing that's being predicted here. So for a brief time, uh, both the Romans and the Jews, Babylon, Babylon and the beast, are attacking the church. But that doesn't last very long because uh, they can't stay friends very long. They hate each other. And what's you know what's happening out on the ground is the Jews rebelling against Rome over and over again, and the Romans come in and clean their clock. Mm. Yeah, interesting stuff. 
Well, I want to return to the destruction of Jerusalem in a moment because I think that you've got something. I think that there's you know something very serious you see in that, very important. But first, uh, you know, we don't have a much a lot more time left. And so, can you summarize briefly for us what the rest of this vision communicates? The the beast and false prophet are thrown into the fire, and then you've got this millennium, and then the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, and so forth. Obviously, summarizing all of this is a tall order. Um, so, but if you could briefly summarize it for us, uh, that, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, at, at the end of the uh, period of history that we're talking about here, um, the beast and false prophet are removed from the world. That is to say, there is no longer any guardian empire beast after AD 70. That, that period of history is over. And there's no longer any prophets uh, from Israel, false or true, because the Bible is finished and so... You know, the, God's purpose in setting aside the Jews has come to an end. Everything is in Christ now. And God's purpose in setting up the oikumene, as the New Testament calls it, oikumene, uh, this empire, that's come to an end. There's no need for that anymore. There's just the church and the world. And um, so uh, in terms of the imagery, uh, these wicked people are cast into... Uh, the place of judgment that's going to continue uh, forever and ever. Um, at the same time, we see the armies of heaven riding out, which is Jesus and the church riding behind him, going out to conquer the world. And in connection with this, uh, since, since everything, you know, all the, all the old uh, strings have been tied up, uh, now we can really get on with the world conquest. Um, we see the millennium begin. We see thrones, and they sit on them. And this is called the first resurrection. I think that goes back to Ezekiel, where uh, we had the vision of the dry bones, and uh, God says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, I have no idea. These are the bones of all the idolaters that were scattered on the mountaintops. And uh, God says, I can revive an idolatrous nation. I can convert these people. So they come back to life again, and there's a resurrection of... God's nation. So I, I think that the idea here is the great tribulation and, you know, this harvest we see in chapter 14, the harvest of the bread and the harvest of the wine, that's the harvest of the saints, the 144,000. And those are the ones who were taken up to heaven. But, you know, that meant a whole lot of Christians did disappear. We look at the church after AD 70 and the people who are writing, they don't seem to know very much. Hmm. It's as if it's as if God said, okay, now you guys have got the Bible. I want you to start just with the Bible. Uh, there's not going to be any apostles continuing on to give you guidance, and an awful lot of the people who are learning and were knowledgeable are going to be taken out of the way. Um, that's my understanding. So the church experiences a, a new birth, a new resurrection on the earth, comes back to life again after the Great Tribulation, and the saints in heaven are now on the thrones formerly occupied by the angels, and they are ruling in heaven with Christ. We don't know how that works. Uh, and then it tells us that toward the end of the age in which we now live, there will be um, a revival of, of counterfeit religion. There will be an apostasy. People, cultures that were Christian will turn away, and but it won't last very long. There will just be a little season and then God will come and, and judge. Now that pushes us back to the earlier part of Revelation, because 
the triumph of uh, the dragon and of the beast was just for three and a half years. That's another little season hmm. <clears throat> when they were deceiving the nations and deceiving the Romans to attack the church. So, in a sense, we're being told, you know, this happens more than once in history. Hmm. And there's going to be little seasons when uh, Russia is taken over by the Soviet Union and Christians are persecuted. There's going to be little seasons when a president of the United States tries to force Christian institutions to pay for birth control and abortion. <laughs> yeah. You know, this kind of oppression and wickedness is going to is going to have its day, but it's just going to be a day. It's just going to be a little season. And each time it's defeated, then millennium, millennium starts up again. It's kind of a a thematic way you can read it. But this will happen at the end in some kind of a big way, and then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. This present world that we live in will undergo a transfiguration. Just as this this world that we live in, all those birds and bees and trees and plants and stars, they're all in union with us. Because we were made out of world. We were made of dust. And so when when we eat food and then we go to pray before God, that food we ate, those plants and animals, they're praising God. But by eating the world we bring the world before God. Mm-hmm in our own bodies. And um, when, we, when we receive our resurrection bodies, when we are transfigured, that just carries with it the idea of a transfigured universe, what that's going to actually be like. We won't know till we're there. Sure. But then I think, and that's in chapter 21, at the first eight or nine verses, but then when we get to chapter 22, it says, I see the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, adorned as a bride. That's an AD 70 event. That's not at the end of time. That's a description of a church as she is right now. Hmm. That's what the church looks like. And there are, there are seven paragraphs. They correspond to the seven days of creation. Uh, but when you get to the end of it, it says, you know, the gates of the city are open. People are coming into it. The spirit of the, and the bride are inviting people to come. Well, that's not going to happen after the last judgment. So that's, that's a picture of who we are right now and what we do right now. Hmm. And uh, so that's why at least... In a spiritual form, we're in the New Jerusalem now. Well, the author of Hebrews says as much. Yeah, Hebrews says as much. Yeah. And then there will be a, a greater manifestation of it in the age to come. Very interesting. I've I've I'd never heard of the uh, uh, notion that you know Revelation twenty or twenty one speak to future events, but Revelation twenty two or the last chapter returns back to uh, eighty seventy. It's very interesting. Um, now, having thus surveyed the book of Revelation, uh, I want to return to the destruction of Jerusalem, which toward the beginning of your book you say, quote, is of incalculable importance to biblical theology and not some mere mopping up operation. Can you explain for us how the destruction of Mystery Babylon uh, is, as the title of your book puts it, the vindication of Jesus Christ and why this is so important to biblical theology? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah I can do that. Will you? <laughs> When God created the world, he created uh, the world, and then he created lands within the world. And then on the east side of the land of Eden, he planted a garden. That's a sanctuary garden. Um, that is a specific place on the earth that was the center of the earth. The rivers flowed out from there and went to the rest of the world, so that the influences that are put in place in the Garden of Eden are supposed to carry out into the rest of the world. Um, after the fall of man, we see that 
There is one race of people, the descendants of Seth, who were set up as priests in the world, and they are the ones who are supposed to maintain God's witness. When they compromise and intermarry with the pagans, then God destroys the world. After the flood, we find another genealogical race of people. We have Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but it's the Shemites who are supposed to maintain God's worship. And then that's specified to the Hebrews and specified down to Abraham and specified down to Jacob, okay, and the tribes of Jacob. And then it's specified down to the Levites and to the priests within Israel. But here is a group of people with a genealogical bloodline, although lots of people can be adopted into it. Um, so it's not really blood, it's covenant. This, this is a line of people who are priests, a genealogical line of people who are priests. And there is a central sanctuary in the earth, one place where heaven and earth connect, one ladder to heaven. The Tower of Babel was a counterfeit, but the, the tabernacle and the temple in their construction, they are constructed as symbolic pyramids. If you were to look at the architecture of it, it's there. Um, they are ladders to heaven. This is a place where heaven and earth are linked. Uh, when Jesus talks to the, uh, the Samaritan woman, she says, well, you people think the only place you can touch heaven is in Jerusalem, but we, we like this mountain out here. And Jesus says, you don't understand, you know, salvation, uh, the right maintenance of worship was given to the Jews. But all that's going to end. That's not the way it is now. Hmm. Uh, when God removes uh, Jerusalem and when he removes the temple, he is removing that idea of geographical centrality. And when he changes Israel, he removes the idea of genealogical uh, administration. So we don't have, you know, genealogies of ministers. <laughs> hmm. You know, I grow up, I'm the son of a minister, therefore I'm a minister. Hmm. Okay, we don't have that, uh, and because it's all in the spirit now, and we don't have this geographical construction of one navel of the earth, as Ezekiel calls it, or the heart of the earth, as uh, Jesus calls it. That's that's gone. Now any place can be the ladder to heaven, hmm. uh, where we gather to worship, and anyone who, with the proper talent and gifts and calling, can be ordained to be the the angel of the church who leads in that worship, conducts you up to heaven and back uh, in the New Covenant way. So that's the importance of it. It's not just the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and those events are not just the end of Israel. They are the end of the entire old creation order. There's no more worship through animals. There's no more central sanctuary on the earth. There's no more genealogical principles of priests. That's been all replaced with the new creation. And that's why Jesus says, when he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, he says the blood of everybody from Abel forward mm. is going to be visited on you. It's the entire first world that is now going to be transfigured into a new world. But that's why it's so important. <laughs> yeah. Very it's not just, you know, some interesting little thing around well, you know, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, so everybody's going to, when they see it happen, they'll say, oh, yeah, I guess he was right. That's good. No, it's a whole lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Well, you know, I wish I had you for several more hours. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have that kind of time. So I, I, let's begin to wrap things up. 
Um, if you could leave with a parting message to those listeners who want to study and understand biblical eschatology and the book of Revelation, what would that message be? What, what would you most like us, including myself, to, to take away from our discussion today? Uh, what I'd most like you to take away from the discussion is that the book of Revelation is totally explained by the rest of the Bible. Mm. That the symbolism in the book is totally taken up from, like I showed you in the book of Zechariah, everything about Mystery Babylon is right there, and yet people aren't aware of it. So if, if you become familiar with the, the imagery of the Old Testament, and that's a lot of stuff, uh, Revelation opens up. And the other thing I would want people to take away is that the conflicts in the book are the same conflicts spiritual warfare conflicts that we have in the book of Acts, in the book of Hebrews, and in, and in the epistles. That's, that's what this is dealing with, and that's why it continues to give us principles and themes that are applicable every day in the church. Mm. Okay. Now, what other resources would you recommend on this topic besides the vindication of Jesus Christ and the lectures upon which it's based? Uh, either resources that you make available or books that you would recommend by others? Uh, well, in terms of what we make available, my commentary on Daniel, which is called A Handwriting on the Wall, and is published by American Vision, that would be of great help to anybody going into Revelation. Uh, and it would also introduce uh, your listeners, uh, all of y'all, to a great <laughs> deal of the symbolic background and imagery that is important. And then I'd have to say my book, Through New Wise, Developing a Biblical View of the World, is all about these issues. And if you become familiar with what's in that book, uh, astral imagery, now Christians tend to be really afraid of studying stars. They know the Bible refers to constellations. Uh, we don't believe in astrology, but symbolism, uh, yeah, the 12 tribes are symbolized by the 12 zodiac signs. It's right there in the Bible. And um, it's a little bit behind the scenes, but it's there, and it figures into the book of Revelation. Hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> numbers in the Bible. People are worried about numbers, but the Bible's full of symbolic numbers, number structures. Um, so if, if we, my book, Through New Eyes, is kind of an introduction to that. And um, if your readers were to get that and plow through it, it would be of help. Uh, more than that, if they wish to go to our website, www.biblicalhorizons.com, our book list sort of specializes in this. So books by Peter Lightheart and others uh, are selected with a view to helping people get a handle on just these kinds of things. So I'll repeat that, www.biblicalhorizons.com, and go over to the product catalog and take a look at what's there. Uh, we have papers that discuss the pillars, Yachin and Boaz, that stood outside the temple, and uh, the giant water stands and the labor of cleansing and all these things and what they meant. Uh, people get interested in this. Uh, we've got a lot of resources. Um, on the book of Revelation, I don't know. I did my own work. Uh, we have several more extended uh, detailed papers on the subject, again, that you'll find in our product catalog. Um, and my associate, Peter Lightheart, is in the process of writing commentary <coughs> uh, for TNT Clark. It's going to be about three years out. Hmm. But he'll be dealing with some other kinds of issues 
uh, as well. So I'm supposed to be writing a commentary on Zachariah for Baker, and I've got it partly done, but it's a way off in the future. But <laughs> uh, so from, from the perspective that I have talked about today, go to our website and, and look at the product catalog. And if you'd like to be on our mailing list and get newsletters as we publish them every month, we're going through the book of Esther. Um, and uh, we, when we're done with that, we'll do other things as well. Great. So they can go there and see the kind of stuff we do and what the old newsletters look like and can write and say, I want to get more, and we'd be happy to service anybody any way we can. Okay, and are you at all comfortable with listeners if they have any questions for you on this topic? Is there a way they can get a hold of you? Um, they can write me at jbjordan4 at cox.net. J-B-J-O-R-D-A-N, the numeral four, at cox.net. I can't promise I'll get to their questions right away because I'm up to my waist in our <laughs> but uh, I'll do what I can. All right. Well, I really appreciate you doing what you can to, to take time uh, to be here with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly did, even if at this point I don't agree with everything that he had to say. Uh, it definitely gives me some things to research. Stay tuned for the next episode of the The Apologetics Podcast, which will be my upcoming debate. Until then...